What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We're glad you're with us. Uh, This is a program just for those of you who are not Catholic. That's right, people who listen to this station who are perhaps a former Catholic, fallen away Catholic, never been a Catholic, and yet still have questions about the Catholic faith. We can answer those questions. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, you'll want to dial the U.S. country code, which is 1 and then 205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, put that question in the comments box, if you would, please. Jeff will then see it. He'll send it to us in the studio. Hope to get that question answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with the rather rumpled, after only three hours of sleep coming back from Omaha, Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Uh, probably doing a little better than you, my friend. Well, you're a bit perkier, that's for sure. Three hours of sleep. About, yeah. About that. Wow, coming back from Omaha. Well, you had a very successful uh, trip there. You went to uh, Sioux Falls, uh, not Sioux Falls, uh, Sioux City, Iowa. Yep, Siouxland Catholic Radio and Spirit Catholic Radio in, 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 uh, in Sioux City and Omaha, respectively. Well, we want to thank uh, Joanne Fox uh, there in Sioux City and Jim Carroll and his team in uh, Omaha. Everybody did a fantastic job making you feel right at home, right? I had a wonderful time. I tell you, it's, it's, it's great to get out there and find out that, lo and behold, there are actually people on the other side of the microphone who actually listen to Catholic Radio. And you get to meet them, and that's just absolutely wonderful. Wonderful thing. Here's an email we received uh, to lead us off here. This is from Mike in North Carolina. He says, a few years ago, the choir director at my church tapped me on the shoulder during the Eucharistic procession. She wanted me to take a pix up to the minister and return with hosts to distribute to the choir. While I did this, I brought them back to the choir, and then they lined up for me to distribute the host myself. Well, I went with it, holding up the host and saying, Body of Christ, just like I've seen extraordinary ministers do all my life. I expressed concern to her later on, but she assured me it was okay. Now, I have never acted as an extraordinary minister or had any training for it, so here are my three questions. One, was it licit for me to receive hosts in a pics to bring back to the choir? Two, if so, should I have said, the body of Christ, or just nothing at all? And three, if I wasn't supposed to do any of this, did it constitute a sin of some kind? Thanks, Mike in North Carolina. Hi, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So uh, let me get to the last question first. I, I don't think that you sinned in any respect. Um, you, you, you've made a prudential judgment about the right thing to do in the circumstance, and you attempted to follow your conscience, and sure. so I, you're fine. Okay. Um, was it licit? Well, I don't know what specific provisions your pastor has made about distributing communion to members of the choir, so I can't say that uh, specifically. But mm. but it, generally, 
extraordinary ministers are, are supposed to be trained and, and especially delegated by the pastor of the church. And you have not been designated an extraordinary ministry in your church, so that would say that's highly irregular. Unless, unless the pastor has said, in the case of the choir, the choir director uh, has authority to delegate the collection of the sacred host in a pix and bring it back. I kind of doubt that. Yeah. I sort of think this was an ad hoc move on the choir director's part. Maybe they've just kind of a habit of doing that, and it's gotten to be familiar. But, um, I mean, the choir director is not the pastor of the parish mm, and doesn't right. have the authority to make that determination. And you are supposed to make sure that extraordinary ministers are people who have the faith and don't live scandalously and have been properly instructed and so forth. In any event, for Mike, though, no harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. All right, very good. Mike, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Gwen in South Wales in the U.K. Gwen says, why is Galatians 3.28 not seen as being in favor of the ordination of women to the sacred priesthood? That is, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, that's from uh, Gwen in South Wales. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, it's because the, the, the verse in question has absolutely nothing to do with ordination. It's not about the question of ordination. The entire book of Galatians is about the question, do Gentile converts to, uh, to Christianity have to follow the law of Moses? Mm. And, and uh, because, of course, in Judaism, there's a rather extensive uh, uh, procedural code that is part and parcel of what it means to be a Jew. You follow all these prescriptions of daily life about food and dress and with whom you can associate and so forth. And uh, from the New Testament point of view, a major purpose of those laws was to separate Jews and Gentiles. And, and when you read them, they do seem to have that effect. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember if you've ever asked an Orthodox Jew to have dinner at your house, they, they get very nervous about that, right? Because, well, they can't eat in a non-kosher kitchen, and so they don't, they don't want to eat with you, you know, generally speaking. Um, and uh, uh, that's why Peter got a bit nervous in, uh, in Antioch when uh, people came from James, and he was like, hmm, don't know if I should eat with these Gentiles. Well, you know, we Jews don't do that. And even though he knew better, he, he pulled back out of fear of the, mm, of the crowd yeah. from Jerusalem. So that's really what's at issue in, in Galatians. And Paul's teaching that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Um, uh, he did not intend that to mean, for example, that uh, Christians should ne- necessarily abolish the institution of slavery. Now, we, they should, right? They should. But that wasn't Paul's aim in that particular epistle. And, and his letter to Philemon indicates that at least, you know, there's certain social institutions that he was content to to deal with, in spite of the fact that in Christ there's no slave, nor free, Jew, nor Greek, male, nor female. Um, uh, Paul certainly never intended to eliminate um, the distinction between male and female within um, the institution of marriage. He gives extensive instructions on on how marriage is to be conducted and, mm-hmm. and, and, and rules governing men and women in that institution, which is founded on sexual differentiation. So there's all kinds of ways in which these categories continue to matter, but they don't matter with with respect to uh, being united in Christ. And the one thing that separated you from Greek, namely uh, the following of the Mosaic Law, is done away with. All right, very good. And uh, thank you, Gwen. I'm glad that you're listening there in UK, in South Wales. Fantastic. In a moment, we're going to get back to the phones and talk to you, hopefully, at 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 
288-3986. We'll lead off in a moment here with Santana in Houston. Also Janet in Doylestown, PA, just outside of Philadelphia. Again, 833-288-EWTN is our number for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called a communion for you here on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Looks like we have three lines open, three lines in the process of getting screened. We'll get the first one on in just a moment here. This month's devotion is to Our Lady of Sorrows. And we remember that. We ask Mary to pray for us so that we can unite ourselves to her in her sorrow in the hope that we will one day also share her joy in the triumph of her son. A little reminder there from all of us at EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Santana in Houston, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM 1430. Hello, Santana. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Good afternoon, my brothers. So I have a question related to the Mass. Yes. Now, uh, we're not Catholic. Um, and earlier this month, uh, the first Sunday of the month, uh, you know, uh, our family, we attended a Catholic church. I really, really loved it. Um, you know, my, my wife was like, you know, honey, I, there's just a lot of moving parts to the Mass. And even though we don't understand everything that's going on, I, I, I do see a lot of beauty in the liturgy and I know that there's other stuff going on there that, that we're not understanding quite, but I was just really uh, wanting to ask if maybe we I could be pointed to a resource, a video, a book that 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 breaks down what is happening in the mass. Because from my understanding, it's all really pointing to Christ, and so and just so that I could you know share with my wife as well and tell her, hey, listen, this is all this is all this is all really uh, glorifying the Lord, you know. And so that was my question. Yeah, sure. I really appreciate the question. So, the, first of all, in terms of what's what is happening in the mass, the 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 major division in the mass is between what we call the liturgy of the word, and that is the the reading and the proclamation of scripture, and then a homily or a sermon on the word of God, and then what we call the liturgy of the Eucharist. That's the major division, and there is an intimate connection between the two of them. Right. So if you remember in, say, the book of Nehemiah, uh, when, uh, when the law of God is presented to the people who've come back from exile in, in, um, in Babylon, and the law is pronounced to them, the terms of the covenant are pronounced, and then the people say, yes, we agree to do that. We will live by those terms. Uh, that, that's kind of the way you should construe the relationship of the liturgy of the word to the liturgy of the Eucharist, that in the first part, it's God's covenant is proclaimed to us. And in the second part, we ratify that covenant. We, the people of God, pledge ourselves to it. And the, the way we pledge ourselves to that covenant, to those promises of God, to that covenant with God, is the way that, that the people of God have always worshipped God, and that is through sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was the sacrifice of, of goats and bulls and sheep and rams and things of that sort. Those things were done away with by the sacrifice of Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus that eliminates that kind of, that need for that sort of worship. But the death of Christ is memorialized in the Mass, and the, the Mass itself declares itself to be the memorial of Christ's death and resurrection. And uh, it's not only the memorial— but it is also the real presence of Christ 
uh, through transubstantiation, the words of the priest when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, we believe that Christ becomes present on the altar, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so the form of the rite, the, the appearance of the rite, the gestures of the rite, as it, as it were, um, symbolize and memorialize Jesus' death. But the victim who died on Calvary is also truly present on the altar. So mm-hmm. the, the union that we have with Christ is not merely notional, right? It's a profoundly intimate union through this mystery of the real presence. Um, and, you know, if you look at the way Christ intended for the faith to be handed on and lived, when there was something that he really wanted us to do, he didn't just say it. He ritualized it. He, he gave us a ritual to show us the change that we were supposed to effect in our lives. So, for example, uh, we're supposed to turn from sin and turn to God, dying to our old way of life and taking on a new one. And he displays that reality to us in the sign of baptism. Baptism shows us the washing away of sin and death and rebirth, but it also affects that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Christians are also to live sacrificial lives. So St. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so we have sacrifice exhibited for us in what we call the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So that's that's kind of the basic distinction in the Mass between that liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, which is a, which is a rite of sacrifice. Now within that, there are a lot of other moving parts in the Mass, as you, as you correctly noted. And some of them are constant, so every Mass you go to will have th- these same prayers. Mm-hmm. And some parts are variable. So, for example, the, the readings that we have in Mass, those change day to day and week to week. Um, but, uh, but there are certain prayers that are, that are constant, uh, that never change. Um, for instance, before the consecration of the Eucharist, we pray with the holy angels, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, just like the angels in Isaiah 6, because we believe that the presence of Christ is about to be made manifest for us on the altar. Um, before we receive the body of Christ in Holy Communion, we always pray, um, as John the Baptist did, Behold the Lamb of God. We say, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. So these are prayers that recur over and over again. Um, there are lots of books that explain uh, the Mass. Now, if you want a, a, a good book that explains what I was saying about the nature of the sacrifice, uh, the best books on that topic, honestly, are the older books. And so um, you might look at a book like <clears throat> On the Most Holy Sacrifice of the Mass by St. Robert, Bel- Robert Bellarmine, B-E-L-L-A-R-M-I-N-E. Um, you might look at St. Alphonsus Liguri and his book, uh, the Holy Mass. Uh, but if you want a book that walks you through all the, the prayers, um, you know, all the different moving parts, as you put it, uh, and, you, and particularly the form of the Mass that's most commonly celebrated today, um, a modern work like Ed Sri's book, Edward Sri, S-R-I, A Biblical Walk Through the Mass. Now, I think, I think that Liguri and Bellarmine do a better job of describing the theology of sacrifice. Sure. Shri does a better job of saying, okay, this prayer goes here, this prayer goes there, and this is what that means. What about, as an overall look at Catholicism, what about Bishop Robert Barron's uh, DVD series? Sure, if you just want an overview, overview of the Catholic faith, that's a, that's a very beautiful introduction to the whole panoply of Catholic tradition, sure. Santana, that's available from the EWTN Religious Catalog. You can go to EWTNRC.com. 
uh, just put in uh, Bishop Barron, and I'm, I'm sure you'll see it. Is that helpful for you, Santana? It really is. Very, very helpful, very helpful. Really appreciate your time, and, and just really the insight and the way you just flesh everything out. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- 288-3986. Call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go to Janet now in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Janet. What's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I have a problem with one of the sacraments. I was raised Presbyterian, and when I was getting married, I went through RCIA, and I learned how to be a better Christian, but I don't feel I learned a lot on the different sacraments and things. I have a problem with the sacrament of reconciliation, and I know it's my problem. I seem to be holding more toward my Protestant belief in that. Can you help me so that I can understand why I need to I mean, I know why I need to go to the sacrament of reconciliation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I can help you. So when you were a Protestant, Janet, I suspect that when you did something wrong, you would often turn to God and say, oh, I can't believe I did that. God, please forgive me. Would I be right in assuming that you would maybe pray like that sometimes in your private life? Yes, that's true. Now, when you did that, how would you have felt if you had heard a voice from heaven whisper in your ear, Janet, it's okay, I've got this, you're forgiven? Would that... I would have really felt wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what confession is. You see, um, every time we encounter God in this life, there is no unmediated connection to God. It's impossible. There's no way to connect to the immaterial God without there being some kind of intermediary. And there are Protestants who think that you can do it. They think you can go to God directly without an intermediary. But they are at least going through the intermediary of their own cognition, the intermediary of their own uh, interior emotional life. And so, you know, a Protestant, for example, who, who feels, I heard this phrase a lot when I was a Protestant, who feels the peace that passes understanding, will interpret their interior emotional state of peace as the presence of the Holy Spirit in their soul. Well, you can't feel the Holy Spirit. Spirit has, is, has no sensible quality to him. But they'll, they'll, they'll interpret their emotional life as a token of God's presence, you see. So even the Protestant who has no ritual is still going to approach God through intermediaries, signs and symbols. They're just signs and symbols of his own invention, perhaps of his own interior life or his own imagination, right? So there's no unmediated contact with God. The Catholic is at a major advantage over the Protestant, when it comes to the assurance of forgiveness. Because like the Protestant, everyone has to connect with God through intermediaries. But unlike the Protestant, I don't have to rely on my subjective emotional state or the content of my consciousness to discern the presence of God's mercy. I don't have to do that as a Catholic because Christ has attached the promise of mercy to an objective, tangible, sensible sign. Namely, the person of the priest articulating the words of absolution. And Christ's promise, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. So when I go to confession and I hear the words of absolution and I believe the promise of Christ and I know the priest has authority to do this, the, the, the visible, auditory, audible 
tangible, sensible aspect of the sacrament allows me to discern with certainty the presence of grace being offered to me in my life. Mm-hmm. All of the sacraments work that way. Right? The, the reason for the sacraments is not, you know, formerly God used to give grace in all kinds of ways, and now he restricts them to the sacraments. That's not the reason for the sacraments. The reason for the sacraments is precisely to give us a tangible sign to which there is a promise of divine assistance, so that whenever we encounter the sign, we have the certainty of encountering the grace. It doesn't mean that you can't get grace elsewhere, right? And Catholics have always taught, yes, you can pray to God in the privacy of your own heart and ask for forgiveness, and God will forgive you. But that act of prayer doesn't come with that divine guarantee. It doesn't come without audible voice saying, it's cool, I've got this. You get that in the confessional. Yes. Right? And so there's a profound, there is a psychological aspect, right? But it's grounded in an objective reality. Now, there's another reason for the confessional also. And this is help, most helpful to see, I think, when you think about confession in the ancient world, which was always public. We only went to private confession in the high Middle Ages. But in the ancient world, confession was public. And penance was public. And penance was a form of exclusion from the church. You would sit in the back of the, you know, the back pew of the church. You go to the back of the church. You wouldn't be allowed to receive communion while you were doing penance. And so reconciliation not only reconciled you to God, but also reconciled you to the people of God. You were reintegrated back into the into the Catholic community and readmitted to communion publicly, right? Because of private confession, we don't have that sense anymore that confession is a sort of reintegration into the life of the public community. But even though we've lost that sense, we haven't lost that reality. And so in addition to being reconciliation with God, the, the priest's absolution is also a judicial verdict of not guilty, making you now eligible to come back into communion with the people of God. See, if you're in the state of mortal sin, you can't go to communion. Now, the way we currently do it, that's just between you, God, and the priest. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's still an objective reality that affects your corporate participation. And so as a, as a juridical act... The priest has authority to lift that that restriction from Holy Communion and readmit you back to the fellowship of the Church. Uh, there's another benefit to confession, uh, a couple more. One of them is that, you know, let's say, uh, I, you know, I do some bad thing and I feel real guilty and I say, God, forgive me. Well, that's, you know, that's not a bad, that's not a bad way of going about life. But when I go to confession, I'm supposed to do a genuine examination of conscience. Like, I'm not just supposed to go because I'm prompted by, you know, some particular guilt feeling. I'm supposed to actually objectively, critically examine my life and figure out what what I'm doing wrong, what I need to fix. Mm -hmm. And so the habit, that practice of the examination of conscience, is an important part of growth in the spiritual life. Then, you have to make an act of humility. Honestly, most of us don't feel that humiliated to confess our sins to God. But to confess them to another human being, like, that takes guts. It's harder to do. And humility, of course, is critical for growth in the spiritual life. So there's so many aspects in which confession really is a profound boon and a great grace, and that's why it's the first thing that Jesus gave the Church after he rose from the dead. Janet, is that helpful for you? Very helpful. I think I'm going to make an appointment with the priest and sit down and talk about that and go over my sins and go to confession. I, I, it, that was very helpful. Fantastic. I think that's a great idea. I remember when I was uh, just a baby Catholic back there in uh, Minnesota, I remember going into the church for a confession, and there was a woman um, a couple of pews ahead of me, uh, a rather famous newscaster locally on, on Twin Cities Television, and she was making, she was writing down 
her sins and writing down, you know, because she didn't want to forget anything. She was she was making a, a concerted effort to really do that homework before going in. Yes, I recommend that practice as long as you don't suffer from scrupulosity. Well, yeah. If you suffer from scrupulosity, burn all your lists. Yeah, you don't want Okay. Yeah. Very good. Janet, thanks again for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. In a moment, we're going to bring on uh, Jim in Cincinnati. Jim called at the uh, end of yesterday's program. Couldn't get him on, so we've got him on today. Also, Bob, a first-time caller in Illinois. A couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, we have two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends in Iowa need to hear from you next week. Iowa Catholic Radio is airing their fall fundraiser all next week. And a little shout out here to our friends at The Quest in Atlanta. They are doing their fundraising uh, this week. So if you're listening to any of Iowa Catholic radios in uh, uh, eight stations in Iowa or The Quest in Atlanta or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Let's go now to Jim in Cincinnati listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Jim. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Um, I'm a uh, recent convert. Um, however, I'm a bit, um, shall I say, homeless in terms of where I feel like I belong. And I've been looking at many Christian denominations and weighing the pros and cons. And I was hoping that you could address one of the cons that I have in the Catholic camp for me. Sure. I understand, and I've read and watched videos on YouTube, the idea of the saints and the intercession, um, patron saints and, and all that. And I understand the concept but I can't get over a uh, gut feeling that I have that it seems, I don't want to say it actually seems polytheistic, but it seems polytheistic adjacent. Um, it's just the way that some people tend to treat them, some of the word choices they use when they're talking about them. It just feels like, it just feels too much like a sort of like, the same thing you would hear uh, of a pagan polytheistic religion. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I have, I have a lot to say about that. First of all, I would say that the the intuition that this feels wrong is not always a good criterion for determining orthodoxy of religious practice, because so much of that intuition is going to be based upon cultural prejudice. That is just as true for a highly devotional Catholic as it is for, say, a kind of... Uh, you know, uh, sober, de-supernaturalized liberal Catholicism, I mean, liberal Protestantism. I mean, mm -hmm. wh wherever we grow up, um, that style is going to feel intuitively like the good, the true, the straight, and the normal, right? And measured against that, aberrations are going to seem wrong, okay? Okay. So I don't, I don't think that intuition is the best way to handle this. When I, when I became Catholic, I, I was in exactly your same position. I'm a convert to Catholicism myself, and and I, I had done the homework, and I understood the doctrine, and I, I, was, I found the doctrine compelling. But there was a lot about the culture of Catholic devotion that I found extremely off-putting. And to be honest with you, there are still elements of Catholic devotional culture 
that I keep, well, you know, maybe not at arm's length, but maybe at elbow's length, okay? <laughs> because they, 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 they don't fit with my personality and, and, and spiritual background and so forth. And so I, I'm, I'm really sensitive to that. Um, and uh, and it's, it's not uncommon. Right. I would also suggest that similarity to paganism by itself um, is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, I'm not conceding. I'm not conceding the argument that devotion to the saints is pagan. I, I don't think that at all. But I want to I just address that in the abstract. If something is similar to paganism, does that make it intrinsically bad? No. And I would fa- argue, in fact, that there are critical elements of historical Christianity, Protestant and Catholic, that are unintelligible, unintelligible, apart from their foundation in paganism. In particular, the discipline of Christian theology. The practice of Christian theology, the idea of giving an abstract, rational, coherent account of the Christian faith that deals in metaphysical and epistemological and anthropological truths, is, is entirely parasitic on, uh, on the origins of Hellenistic and Roman philosophy. Right, so, so historical early Judaism does nothing like this. And, and the advent of theology as a discipline is because Christians uh, intentionally accommodated biblical religion to, to the intellectual precedent of, uh, of pagan philosophy. And I could go through and name other aspects of Christian faith where there's no controversy about the practice of something that, mm-hmm. that inescapably has pagan origins. All right. um, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, is devotion to the saints, uh, uh, is its origins pagan? No. Its origins are Jewish, Hebrew. Um, and in fact, uh, in the milieu of early Christianity— one of the things that the Romans found so offensive about Christians was precisely their devotion to the saints and the relics. Because in much of paganism, the idea of commingling um, the bodies of the dead with the worship of the gods was anathema. Uh, and most of the laws governing the disposal of, of human remains required that they be at some distance from the city on the grounds that the impurity would be offensive to the city gods. And so here come Christians worshiping in catacombs and carrying the dead bones, the relics of their saints, into the cities and into their basilicas. The Romans were about to, you know, rip their own heads off in frustration with that. The Julian the Apostate, the Roman emperor who, who turned back to paganism, was particularly offended by this Christian practice. And in fact, we find, it, uh, we find devotion to the saints, their relics, and their tombs uh, of course, in in first century and second mm-hmm. temple Judaism, so it, it doesn't have pagan origins. It really is within the the uh, the, the stream of biblical religion that this practice emerges. Um, uh, but uh, but I also want to con- I do want to concede one thing, and that is that not everything that practically falls under the rubric of devotion to the saints um, is healthy, right? And there is such a thing as superstitious devotion. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about it, 
and, uh, and uh, encourages bishops and leaders in the church to always purify whatever devotions we have of any, of any hint or element of superstition. So, for example, you know, um, uh, a, a, a relatively harmless and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and common Catholic practice is to associate particular saints with particular uh, needs, you know. So St. Jude is the patron of hopeless causes, this sort of thing, you know. And that's kind of delightful, and it can be edifying. But if someone were to take that to a kind of irrational extreme, that um, you know, uh, you know, I can't, I can't sell my house unless I, uh, you know, bury a saint statue upside down in my front yard. That kind of thing. That's that's ridiculous and superstitious, and sure. you, you don't endorse that. All right. Um, uh, so, so I will concede that point. Um, but let me go back to the intuition and to the feeling. If you believe that the Catholic faith is founded by Jesus and that the tradition of the Catholic Church possesses divine authority, in the same way that a Protestant would hold that the Bible has divine authority, look, the Bible says some bizarre stuff that, quite honestly, if I weren't raised on biblical literature, if I just took up the Bible and read it prima facie, I would think, this is weird. (laughs) <laughs> this doesn't feel right. Mm. You know, the, go read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I mean, there's some odd stuff in there, okay? And I gloss it because having been raised in the Bible Belt, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm habituated to it. It's normalized to me, right? But I, if I came at it from an, as an outsider, I'd think this is pretty strange stuff. Uh, but you accept it because you think the Bible is the Word of God, so I'll find a way to accommodate that with my, with my spirituality. If you approach the tradition of the Catholic Church with the same kind of submissive attitude, right? There are things in Catholicism that feel odd to me now, but I accept them on authority, the same way I would accept, say, the contents of Leviticus on authority, because it's divine revelation. Mm. Let me find a way to integrate it with my rationality and my spirituality. If you make that, that act of faith, what I have found, and many people have found, is that things that formerly seemed quite offensive to them will begin to seem quite beautiful. Oh, there you go. And, uh, and you will grow into the practice of devotion to the saints, prayer to the saints and their intercessions, and find that it is a very beneficial part of your spirituality. Doesn't mean you have to buy every Catholic devotion. You don't. You, you find the ones that work for you uh, that are best integrated in your spirituality and go with those. Food for thought. Jim, thanks so much uh, for your call from Cincinnati. Let's go now to Bernadette, a first-time caller in the San Francisco Bay Area, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, Bernadette. What's on your mind today? Thank you for taking my call. I have a question about math protocol, uh, if, you, if you want, or rubrics. Um, is it okay for a priest to say in the tradition, before proclaiming the gospel, in the tradition of, say, Luke, Mark, or... Um, that inappropriate, and also priests that say he, him or her, you know, he, so I'm, I'm wondering. So, so the priest, thank you, I appreciate the question, the priest has no authority, no authority to change the rubrics of the Mass, and, and if you, if you open the Roman Missal, you will find text printed in black and text printed in red, and the red text indicates ritual that he is to perform, and the black text indicates words that he is to say. And he has no authority to say anything other than what is printed in black, and no authority to do anything other than what is indicated in red. No ad-libbing. No ad-libbing. All right, very good. Uh, Bernadette, thank you so much for your call. 
Appreciate that. Hey, be sure to join us for Beyond Damascus on Saturday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, here on EWTN Radio with Dan Demite and Aaron Richards. What a great show. Young Catholic adults sharing their stories of life within the Catholic Church and the blessings that the faith brings. This is a... Uh, a charged-up show. It's uh, it's electrifying. I love it. Beyond Damascus, Saturday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Bob, a first-time caller in Illinois, also listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Bob, what's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon, gentlemen. You guys are fantastic. Uh, you really do a, a great job, and I, and I mean that sincerely. Thank you. Um, my question to you is, uh, I have a Bible, 1975 vintage, the one that the, the Father actually uses in Mass, the original one. I've read it from cover to cover. I'm a cradle-to-grave Catholic. And at the very end of the, the Bible, there's a section there called, like, abbreviations and definitions and clarity. And I saw this today, and I kind of panicked. So under the definition of sponsor, it says one sponsor only is required for confirmation but he must be of the same sect as the confirmed. Well, I was confirmed in 1978, and I wasn't smart enough to ask this question, nor was the bishop or the father at the time. They since both passed away. And so long story short is uh, I did not have another another guy there. I had a gal there. So what does this mean in English that uh, I can understand today? Yeah, well, it doesn't have any effect on the validity of your confirmation. Right. Um, the matter and form of the sacrament do not require the presence of a godparent in any description in order for there to be validity. Okay. So don't worry about it, Bob. You're in good shape. Uh, appreciate your call today. Here's an email that we received. Uh, this is from Justin, who says, Does it mean that God's presence can be in churches that have left the Catholic faith to establish their own churches? Is the presence of God in occult kingdoms, mosques, shrines to pagan gods, demonic kingdoms, Pentecostal churches, etc. If yes, why did Jesus say, not all those who call me Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven? And why did God have to reveal himself to some old prophets on mountains? I do believe that God is fully present in the chapel, holy mountains, consecrated altars, and the church. So if God's presence is everywhere, I don't need to go to the chapel or the church to seek God. I should rather worship him in any non-Catholic churches that I see. Please help. I need to understand this. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, thanks. So we have to distinguish multiple modes of the divine presence. So here is an analogy. Wherever you go on planet Earth, you will find the presence of geometry, you will find geometry. You'll find that the Pythagorean theorem works wherever you are. The lines and angles in any church building or mosque or synagogue or Buddhist temple you find will answer to the same geometric principles that you can find in Euclid, uh, that you can discover in nature, uh, that you will, you know, you'll see exemplified everywhere. And, and, and geometry is not something that is itself spatially located. These are abstract concepts that have no spatial location. I mean, like the Pythagorean theorem isn't anywhere. It's not, it's not a thing that you can put in time and space, but it can be instantiated uh, in, uh, in these particular instances, and that's always true. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. And there, there are things about God, like the Pythagorean theorem, actually, which flows from the divine intellect, that you will find in every church, uh, in every building, in every mosque, uh, in every secular building. I mean, you, can, you, could, you could go to 
you know, the shopping mall and you could gaze on geometry and, and with the proper disposition, your thoughts could elevate through the contemplation of the, of the geometric form of the steel girders above your head. You could rise to a contemplation of God. Uh, St. Bonaventure, a Catholic doctor of the church, said that the world, the whole world, is a ladder ascending to God. Right? Now, so in that sense, you can talk about the presence of God being everywhere. Um, but there are more restricted senses in which we can talk about the presence of God. So um, it is manifest that everybody's got geometry, but not everybody comes up with the same conception, say, of human morality. And so even though the natural law is available to all, not all derive the same conclusions from it, and there can be really substantive, difference, substantive differences. So, you know, up until the 20th century, it was common practice, and even into the 20th century, it was common practice in, in certain uh, pagan societies to burn widows to death when their husbands passed. And, and that was actually regarded as a pious act. Wow. Okay? Um, there are still civilizations in the world today where uh, it is regarded as a pious act to murder your daughter— if she is raped. Wow. I could go down a list and I could name any number of barbarisms that are performed uh, throughout the world and claimed as moral acts or pious acts. Um, and uh, that is not uh, what the Christian faith teaches. The Christian faith teaches that all people are made in the likeness and image of God and have the capacity to be remade in the likeness and image of Christ and therefore, from the greatest of them to the, to the least among them, every human being possesses an inherent dignity, and that the same moral law, uh, you know, of don't do to somebody else what you don't want done to you applies in a strict sense in all these cases. And so, you know, you, you're not going to burn widows, and you're not going to murder rape victims, and you're not going to do all these kinds of things. They're not pious acts. They're, they're abominations, and they're profound superstitions. Mm. And... And so, but, but even though the dignity of the human person is evident, it's not seized upon by every civilization. So Bonaventure, again, the, the one who said that the world is a ladder ascending to God and you, you can, in a sense, find God everywhere, said, yeah, God is everywhere, but not all have eyes to see God in the right way everywhere because our vision needs to be purified. Mm. And that purification comes through the Spirit of Christ, the teaching and the person and the Spirit of Jesus. Um, because uh, left to our own devices, we don't do such a good job with the presence of God that can be found everywhere. And so we have other modes of the divine presence that specify, if you will, that focalize, if you will, what can be known about God. So C.S. Lewis once said that Christianity writes in capital letters what nature wrote with a cribbed hand. Hmm. And the incarnation of Christ is, is the presence of that universal reason in flesh among us, living and demonstrating what a true human life uh, and the principle of human dignity look like in real time. Justin, thanks so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. We have this one now from Wallace. When listening to Bishop Robert Barron speak, 
I'm reminded of the rich Catholic intellectual tradition. But is an, intel in, an intellectual appreciation of the tradition enough as far as a place to try to start practicing my faith again? The only way I can make the idea of God make sense to me is to equate it with the platonic ideals of goodness, truth, and beauty or in a more abstract way, like the way the Duns Scotus or St. Teresa of Avila described God. Can I try to rebuild a relationship with Catholicism based on that kind of God concept, or am I just a hopeless cause? I just can't wrap my head around the idea of a personal father figure deity. You know, someone asked me uh, before, I, I, I recently spoke in Omaha, Nebraska, and I spoke on the question of relationship to Christ. Yes. And we got a call on the show last week from someone who was in Omaha, and they said, well, you know, I'd like to bring my non-Catholic friend, but they're afraid that you're going to just try to convince all Protestants to become Catholic. And I said on the show, no, my goal is to convince Catholics to accept Catholicism, <laughs> right? Uh, many of whom don't know what their own faith teaches. Yes. You know, that, that's my objective, get Catholics to accept Catholicism. Sure. And, and this feels like one of those questions, right? Because what you've just asked me, is it okay to worship God according to the doctrine of God that the church proclaims? Because what you just described, where you aligned the nature of God with the platonic uh, transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty, mm -hmm. or the cosmological proofs that Duns Scotus articulates, or the mystical experience of Teresa of Avila, well, you, you, you know that Blessed Don Scotus is following up on a tradition of Catholic intellectual life that's very imminent, and he's not a doctor of the church, but, um, but Thomas Aquinas was, right, who was also doing similar kinds of work, and, and, and his treatise on the nature of God is what you just said, right? Um, Teresa of Avila is absolutely a doctor of the church, and... Plato, while not a doctor of the church, we might call him an honorary doctor. He got the honorary PhD in, oh, okay. in Catholicism, you know, <laughs> because uh, uh, Catholic, the Catholic doctrine of God and Catholic spirituality is, is just saturated through and through with Platonic concepts. Um, there is a, a, a neat book, it's actually by an Orthodox historian and theologian named Andrew Luth on the origins of Christian mysticism. Uh, you can go look it up. And uh, the argument, which I am persuaded by, is that the Christian spirituality and, and theology are, are, are just utterly saturated with Neoplatonism. Um, earlier in the show, I was quoting uh, Bonaventure, St. Bonaventure, in his book, The Mind's Journey into God, which is little else other than a Christianized Neoplatonism. Uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, who was one of the major theological influences on Aquinas, same thing. He was... Uh, um, uh, a Proclean Neoplatonist through and through. I mean, so the, the, the Christian faith, Catholic faith, has utterly integrated Platonism and and, and Greek philosophy into its in, into not only its theology but also into its spirituality. So yes, it's absolutely appropriate to approach God in that way, and I think that is a magnificent way to start your Catholic journey. Absolutely. And we do appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your email. We're going to close with this one from Corey. Hello, Dr. Anders. I love your show. You and Tom seem like honest, genuine, and intelligent men. How can one become more like you both? 
Oh, please don't. Please don't. Become more like you. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the thing. Become more like you. And honestly, like, you know, Tom's a great guy, but, um, but you know, you only get me an hour a day, and I, I'm very guarded in what I say on the air, so you don't know what the rest of my life might be like. I could be a total jerk, you know? Ditto. Ditto. And um, I know Tom, and he's not a total jerk, but I mean, you know, <laughs> but uh, if Tom knew everything about me, I tell you, he would, he would think twice. So, yeah, don't be more like us. Be more like you. Uh, and that's the great thing about the saints, that the saints show us that every different kind of personality, temperament, and state of life can be sanctified. And when you look at the saints, they're incredibly different, except for the fact that they all exhibited heroic charity. But they did it in very different ways, with very different vocations, very different modes of life, very different personalities. Some of them were really, really sane, mentally well-balanced, rational people. Some of them were, some of them were kind of nutters, to be honest with you. Mm. But they were, they were loving nutters. And uh, some of them were flighty, some of them were stable. Uh, you know, some of them were good organizers, some of them were terrible organizers, some of them were, were adventurers, some of them were neurotic, but they all had this, this heroic charity because of their love for God and Christ. And, and that's the beautiful thing about the saints. You go do you, but do it for Jesus. I just remember uh, seeing a, a, a quote from somebody famous, don't remember who it was, but it was basically along the same lines, but this person said, be yourself, everybody else is taken. There you go. Love that. Well, we do have time for one more from Beverly. Can you please explain this? In a recent Mass reading from Matthew 23, verses 2 through 12, Jesus explicitly tells the disciples to call no one on earth Father. As you have one Father, he is in heaven. Yet, we do exactly that when addressing not only our own genetic dads as Father, but we refer to our priests as Father. Why? because that's exactly what we're told not to do. Thanks, Beverly. Right. So it's fairly evident from the context of Matthew 23 that Jesus doesn't have biological parenthood or priesthood in mind. Uh, the context, this is consistent with all of his teaching, is he's warning against the kind of person who seeks out uh, leadership in a religious community because they desire to be seen by men and to possess a title with authority. Right. So yeah. if, uh, if, uh, if you're a young man and you're considering priesthood, because you really like the thought of being able to control the parish budget, uh, hire and fire the DRE, tell people what to do, have people <laughs> call you father and invite them over to your house, to their house to bless it, and you get to you know be all important and, and people will need you and regard you highly. You do not need to have a Catholic uh, vocation at the priesthood. That's not for you. Jesus has just said, don't do that, right? Yeah, yeah. Th that's what this is warning. It's about a moral disposition. But we see so many other instances in sacred scripture, Old and New Testament, where the name Father is used as a term of endearment for a religious authority. St. Paul himself uses it of himself. He says, I'm, I'm your father in the gospel. You've become my child. Um, Elisha the prophet says to Elijah, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. I mean, there are many instances of this in scripture. So it's evident that Jesus isn't condemning the use of the word pater, but rather a, a kind of haughty attitude that seeks leadership for its own sake. Probably one of our top five questions, wouldn't you yeah, say? Yeah, it's a big one. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. And welcome back from your uh, jaunts forth. Uh, happy to have gone and happy to be back. Very good. Don't forget, we did this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN. Looking forward to our next visit. Hopefully, you'll join us on the Thursday edition of Call to Communion. I'm Tom Price. We will see you then. God bless. <laughs>